The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Um, Today's preaching will be from all of chapter 8, Leviticus chapter 8. Um, I will be reading verses 1 through 13. So please stand with me as I read God's word. Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread. And assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him And in the breastpiece, he put the Urim and the Thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured out some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, here we are. We are continuing our journey through the book of Leviticus. Um, again, I encourage you, if you're not on Slack or not used to checking it, what I've been trying to do is put before us uh, various things throughout the week to try to help us be prepared to come and hear from the Lord as it relates to any various texts that we have in Leviticus, since Leviticus is probably um, uh, more unfamiliar than it is familiar to us. My high encouragement would be to uh, do some legwork. Um, throughout the week so that you come ready to, to hear and receive uh, as, as we turn to the text during the preaching time this morning. So this morning we are going to be looking at all of Leviticus 8, and if you've done your pre-work, so to speak, what you will see before us is that there is um, an ordination ceremony that is taking place in Leviticus chapter 8. A ceremony that, again, most of us might look at and be like, wow, I'm sure some people a long time ago were highly stoked about what was taking place here, but I've read it, and I honestly have, one, no clue what Pastor Jonathan's going to say, and two, no clue how this even remotely should apply or why I should care. And so I'm hoping and praying, I'm going to pray here in a minute, that there is actually something incredibly good. There is a good news invitation again lying before us in Leviticus 8. Even in the ordaining of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, my hope and my aim is that you will come to see that there is something extremely pertinent to you and me as it relates to us who are priests before God 
as well because of who we are in Christ, our great high priest. So our sermon title this morning is just simply called Priests to God. And the main idea that you're going to see hovering over Leviticus 8 this morning comes down to this, Yahweh's provision for priests. He's the one who provided this. It's not Moses' idea. This is Yahweh's idea. Yahweh's provision of priests is how sinful people can safely dwell before a holy God. How are unholy people, question we asked last week, going to dwell with and be in the presence of a holy God? He's continuing, Yahweh's continuing to reveal, unfold his redemption story before these people. And what you're seeing is this idea of a need for a priest to mediate between us and the holy God is being rolled out before us right now in Leviticus chapter 8. So I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to take this natural work of what I've prepared as I've sought the Lord this past week, and that fire would come and fall and turn this natural work into a supernatural work. So let's pray and ask for God to do this, and then we'll dive in to our text before us this morning, okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have been soft this past week to understand what lies before us. And what lies before us, I believe, is truly good news for anyone who's been called to be a priest. And as the New Testament says, that category is now all of us in Christ. In other words, Father, you have a good news message for all of us this morning who are in Christ out of Leviticus 8. So I'm asking that you would grant the gift of the Spirit, this power, so that as we wrestle with the text before us, you would open our eyes to truly behold wonderful things from your law that you would fall like fire on this time, on the natural work, the preparation that just goes into the preaching of God's Word, and that your fire would fall, and so that we would not just merely be exposed to a natural thing, but to a supernatural reality. Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our minds to understand what lies on page before us so that when all is said and done, we might walk out of here with our faith made more firm upon Christ, our solid rock. It is in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Last week, I attempted to set us up for Leviticus 1 and ultimately Leviticus 1 through 7 and all the sacrifices by giving us a little bit of context. 
And what I want to do this morning is I want to do the same thing. It is always important to remember where we are at in our Bibles so that we can understand what God is saying to us. So if you go back to the end of Exodus, what you will remember is that the tabernacle has been built in Exodus chapter 40. And the glory of the Lord has descended upon that tabernacle. But as Moses, who is really this sort of prophet-priest mediator that is going between God and the people of Israel, Moses himself, the one you would think would be able to go before the presence of the Lord, is not able to enter into that tent of meeting because of the Lord's awesome, glorious presence dwelling there in the tent. And what we said last week, it was this tension, this scenario of tabernacle built, Yahweh's glorious presence dwelling in the tabernacle, Moses having to be spoken to from the tent, God's in the tent, Moses outside of the tent. We said this scenario prompts the question that really ultimately lingers and hangs over the entire book of Leviticus. And it's this question, how in the world does a holy God dwell in the midst of unholy people? How does that take place? How does that happen? And what we said last week was the answer to that question begins to unfold as you look at the first seven chapters of Leviticus and the sacrifices needed in order to make atonement for sinful people. God's holiness requires atonement. And the sacrifice of a substitute we see in the first seven chapters is God's gracious provision for that atonement. God says you need to be atoned for. You need to be made holy. And then he doesn't just sit back and cross his arms and say, I sure hope you guys figure this out. But his requirement for sinful people, he actually turns around and says, now I'm going to provide what you need so that this requirement can be met in your life. But what's also made clear as you continue to work forward in the book of Leviticus is that these sacrifices that we've seen, in order for them to be made acceptable before God, it's going to require priests. It's going to require a priesthood. And that's where we round out of seven and into Leviticus chapter 8 and what you will see is that as you read through the book of Leviticus, this little section of Leviticus 8, 9, and 10 is a little section, a new section of God's redemptive story unfolding and moving forward. When you look at verse 1, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. Yahweh is speaking to him. In other words, everything we are about to read in Leviticus 8 is not Moses' idea. It is coming from Yahweh himself, our holy God, our great God, our good and gracious king that we were seeking, singing about this morning. He is moving toward us, moving toward sinful people and saying, I'm now going to show you by my grace, by my mercy, according to my steadfast love, how you can dwell with me. And what he's saying is that you need priests. All that we are about to hear 
is not Moses' idea. It's Yahweh. And the story of redemption begins to shift gears and move forward as he begins to tell Moses in verse 2, Moses, here's what you need to do. You need to take Aaron. You need to take his sons with him. Then you need to go and assemble all of the congregation, and you need to bring them before the entrance of the tent of meeting. This activity in Leviticus 8 is directly related to what Yahweh told Moses back in the book of Exodus. That's why if you notice on Slack, the reason why I keep dropping all of these Exodus references is because Leviticus is the application, if you will, of so many chapters in the book of Exodus. And so when you go back into Exodus, Exodus 29 specifically, what you will see that it was Yahweh who gave Moses instructions on how to consecrate Aaron. That is to set apart Aaron. Or you could say to make Aaron and his sons holy in the eyes of the Lord so that Aaron and his sons could serve as priests. But the tension... When you stitch Exodus 29 together, and you know what comes after Exodus 29, the whole golden calf incident, and now all of a sudden here we are in Leviticus 8, and Moses is saying to Aaron, I am going to now bring you forward and run you through this ordination ceremony so that you might serve as priests. There is a tension when you put all these things together that is just lingering in the air and the tension revolves around the fact that we are talking about Aaron after all you remember Aaron yes that particular Aaron the responsibility evading Aaron the making Israel to sin Aaron the I promise you I just threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf Aaron right it's this this Aaron that is just about now to be ordained as a priest made holy, set apart, consecrated before a holy God. But in obedience to God, the question is, is Moses going to go through with this? Remember, Moses is the one that had to come down from the mountain. Moses had to hear from Yahweh himself. My anger is burning hot against this people because your brother has just thrown some gold into the fire and out came this calf and now everyone is sinning and he's evading the responsibility as a priest. The question is, is Moses going to obey Yahweh or not as it relates to consecrating Aaron and his sons so that Aaron and his sons can go from impure, unclean, common, ordinary, sinful, unholy men to the exact opposite in the eyes of the Lord? And the answer is, Moses does obey. Moses does obey. In obedience to God, it says there in verses 5, verses 4, Moses did as the Lord commanded him, saying to the congregation, verse 5, this is the thing the Lord has commanded to be done. Yahweh has said to do this. And we are going to walk in obedience to our God. And it's here, in this transition from verse 5 forward into this ordination ceremony, that in the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests, we see God's grace on display. 
Do you see what I mean by that? Like the last person, if you're just going on merit alone, that deserves to be in the place that Aaron and the sons are going to be in, it would not be Aaron. It'd be anybody but Aaron. But the problem is, Aaron is really representative of us all. We're all a bunch of Aaron's, and none of us deserve to be priests before God. And so for Yahweh to still say, I know what the man said, I know what the man did, I know the lies, I know the irresponsibility that he was evading, he was pulling in Adam by saying, well, God this and the people that, and he was doing everything but owning his sin and how he led Israel to sin for Yahweh to still say, I get it, but Moses walk forward in obedience to me, ordain Aaron, ordain his sons as priests. This is God's unmerited favor on display. You see, it would be the job of Aaron and his sons to serve in the tabernacle. It's going to be the job of these men to lead in the worship of God. These are the worship leaders of Israel. Yet they themselves were not ready to fulfill this calling. They're just ordinary men, sinful people like the rest. They themselves were not holy. But by going through this ceremony, this Leviticus 8 ordination ceremony, what we're going to see is this. Aaron and his sons are going to have a change in status that's going to set them apart and make them ready to serve as priests to God. This is an ordination ceremony. When someone goes through a ceremony, they enter on the front end of a ceremony one way, then they walk out the back end of a ceremony another way. In the words of one commentator, this is the purpose of a ceremony. Listen. This commentator said, generally speaking, think about what a ceremony does. A ceremony, he says, brings about a change in status for the main participants of that ceremony through a series of rites related to the ceremony. So think about this as it relates to a wedding ceremony. Think about a wedding ceremony. The purpose of a wedding ceremony is to do what? It's to change the status of the bride and the groom who are entering into the front end of the ceremony, single bride, single groom. They go through the ceremony, engaging in particular rites related to the ceremony, the exchanging of the rings, the giving of vows, the saying, I do. And then what happens is through the various rites they partake in in that ceremony, they then turn around at the back of the ceremony and walk out saying, I am changed. My status has changed. I entered in single. I am now leaving married. I once was one and one, but now these two have become one. I'm not the same anymore. We all understand there's nothing magical about putting a ring on a finger. There's nothing magical about saying some words. What we're doing is saying at that particular moment, in that particular time, this man, this woman, entering into the front end of the ceremony, walking through the ceremony, coming out in the back end of the ceremony, is a way to symbolize things outwardly, marking that there is a true inward status change for that man and for that woman. Once single, now smushed together, two have become one, and they go out the back end of that ceremony truly having their status in life changed. If you can grasp that, then you have everything you need to grasp Leviticus chapter 8. Because 
Aaron and his sons are going to be washed with some water. They're going to get a new set of clothes. They're going to be anointed and sprinkled with some oil. And some, they're going through all these things, and there's nothing magical going on. But all of these rites that are listed out in Leviticus 8 are God's way of saying something outwardly that represents something you need inwardly. And as Moses and his sons go through these seven different rites laid out before us in Leviticus 8, what we're meant to see is this. This is how someone like Aaron, someone like Moses, or someone like his sons are going to go from unholy to holy, from unclean to clean, from impure to pure, from sinful to in the eyes of the Lord, to being ritually pure. And I'm arguing to us this morning that how Aaron and his sons go from unpriest to priest in Leviticus 8 is extremely pertinent to you and me because if you understand Aaron and who he is, in his impurity, in his uncleanness, in his sinfulness, in his unholiness, then you should be able to go pull out Aaron and grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and go and put yourself in his place. Because we are the Aaron's in the text. So how is it that someone goes from non-priest to priest? This transition is extremely pertinent because of what the New Testament says about you and me as priests before God. That's the language we were hearing this morning if you were paying attention in the liturgy. It is good news for you, it is good news for me that common, unholy, sinful people can become cleansed, purified, holy priesthood because just as Old Testament priests were set apart by God, now all who are in Christ are set apart as priests as well. That is point number one for us this morning. Priests were set apart by God, but now all who are in Christ are set apart as priests as well. So when Moses, back in the book of Exodus, heard from God on Mount Sinai, got to go back to Exodus 19. Moses, before Yahweh, Mount Sinai, Yahweh says this to Moses. Tell this to the people. If you will indeed obey my voice, says Yahweh, if you will indeed keep my covenant, I want you to listen to the language here. This is what Yahweh says to his people. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me two things, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. But as we take a glance, and you don't have to take a deep glance, but as you take a glance into Leviticus chapter 8, what you see very quickly is that this promise, this Exodus 19 promise, is not coming to pass in its fullness, at least not yet. Exodus 19, you, all the people of Israel, shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You, all the people of Israel, shall be to me a holy nation. Leviticus 8, Aaron and his sons, five guys. 
That's not a whole nation. That's not what I would constitute an entire kingdom filled full of people who are priests. In Leviticus, this promise, Exodus 19 promise, isn't coming to pass in its fullness, at least not yet. In chapter 8, it's just Aaron and his sons who are being set apart as priests. And it won't be until the coming of the great high priest, Jesus Christ himself, that this Exodus 19 promise is going to be fulfilled. For through the work of Jesus, so punch forward into the New Testament and you see the work of Christ on the cross. You see what he accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. It's through all of this, the work of Jesus, our high priest, all whom God has caused to be born again, says the Apostle Peter, are made to be a holy priesthood. Then Peter goes so far as to say that if you have been born again, it's what we read earlier in our liturgy. You, born again man, you, born again woman, here's who you are in Christ. Here's who you are as one who's been saved by the great high priest. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Almost verbatim, The promises of Exodus 19 are being carried over by the Apostle Peter and laid on top of who? Not just a few. Not just Aaron and his sons. But upon any who have called on Christ as Lord and as Savior who can say in the language of 1 Peter, God has caused me to be born again And Peter says, if that is true of you, if you can say with your mouth, because it is a proper reflection of what your faith and your trust in Christ looks like, then you, right now, May 1st, 2022, are a priest. How many of us woke up this morning feeling really super priestly this morning? I see no hands whatsoever. But did you know that is who you are in Christ, according to the Apostle Peter? You're a priest. He goes so far as to say you're actually a royal priest. He says you are a holy nation because you're made up of a whole bunch of people, men and women, who've been made holy. A nation of holies, people who've been made holy. He says you're actually a chosen race. It goes so far as to say out of all the things in the world the Lord treasures, you are a possession he treasures. Do you have a treasured possession in your house? Yeah? Is there just something you treasure? In the truest sense of the word, show of hands, yeah? There's just something you're like, yeah, I like this thing. It's a treasured possession. You know how you feel towards that treasured possession. In the grand scheme of things, the way you feel your heart toward that treasured possession is the world's most microscopic thumbnail scratch of how the living God feels toward you, His treasured possession. So the question then becomes, okay, if this is the Old Testament shadow we're getting here in Leviticus 8, and 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the New Testament reality, the New Testament substance that fulfills this Leviticus 8 shadow. 
then how is someone made holy? How is someone set apart to serve as a priest? What does this change in status look like? How does this change in status take place? Can we look into Leviticus 8 and walk out the back end of Leviticus, Leviticus 8 and say something that we see here looks true in my life because my guess is most of us are saying man like the way I was made a priest it didn't have any blood they didn't have any bulls there was no rams there was no wave offerings no one was flicker, flicking and sprinkling me with oil and with blood like I did not go through an ordination ceremony like this but I think what we're going to see is that the movements of Leviticus 8 actually have taken place for you spiritually in Christ how does this change in status take place? Just think about it. How could an idol-crafting knucklehead like Aaron be made into a priest before God? Or just forget about Aaron and look at the man, look at the woman in the mirror right now. In your mind's eye, do that. And say, just forget about Aaron. What about, what about me? <laughs> How could a rebellious me, I've rebelled against this holy God. I've committed treason against this holy God. I am an idolatrous, impure, unholy, sinful man, sinful woman, and you're telling me God by his mercy, God by his grace has made me a priest before him? How is this true? I'm glad you're asking that question because the answer is Leviticus chapter 8. So let's look at how Moses brought Aaron and his sons before the Lord and basically walking through this ceremony, they went from unpriest to priest. What you'll notice this, first they were washed. They were washed. Look in verse 5, starting there in verse 5. Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. What you need to know is that as they were doing this, this was an act of ritual purification. And it signified something. And it signified this. It signified Aaron and his sons needed to be cleansed from their sin. Nothing magical in the water. By being washed, though, what they're saying is, I'm impure, I'm unclean, sin has stained me, and I need to be washed, I need to be made pure, pure from the filth of sin in order to serve God as priests. And this washing was a way of Aaron and his son saying, I agree with this. I'm not trying to tell a lie, anybody. After all, I'm the one who just made up the whole, you know, rigmarole about the golden calf kind of thing. Like, I know I'm a sinner and filthy and stained with sin, so they are need to be washed in order to be purified before God. Notice then next, they were clothed. They were clothed, washed, then clothed. Verses 7 through 9, verse 13, that's what all this language is. The coat, the sash, the robe, the ephod, the woven band, the breastpiece, the urim and the thummim, the turban, the golden plate, the holy crown. What is all this? This is the uniform. This is the vestiture. This is the clothing of these priests. And like a soldier's uniform, right? A soldier wears a uniform. You can stand back and go, aha, I know what he's about. He's wearing the uniform. Or think about a bride in her wedding dress. 
She doesn't go around wearing that every day of her life. When you see a woman wearing her wedding dress, you understand immediately, I know what's going on here. That uniform for the day signifies something true about her. Or if you think about someone who's in mourning, someone who's died and they're wearing all black, you don't have to second guess what's going on. You understand exactly where they're at. If you can grasp those concepts, then you understand this, is that the priest's special clothing identified them as having been set apart by the Lord. Again, there's nothing magical about this uniform that they're wearing, but the idea is it is clothing them with something to set them apart so people can look and say, aha, this person's been set apart. There's not a lot of people walking around with Aaron's uniform because there's only one person walking around with Aaron's uniform, and that uniform tells me something has happened to Aaron. He has been set apart. He has been made holy. He has been consecrated. He is the one who can mediate between me, sinful Israelite, and a holy living God. Their special outfit was meant to tell the people this is God's chosen servant. This Aaron and his sons have been set apart for a very particular priestly holy purpose. And as the priest were to put on these clothes, it would have reminded them of something. It would have reminded them, me, Aaron, me, my sons, we've been clothed with this vestiture, these garments, not because we deserve it by right. Imagine the incredulity of Aaron showing up before Moses, ripping them out of his hands and putting them on. I'm like, of course I deserve to be this. I'm Aaron. Right? We'd be like, dude, like you're the one who just crafted the idol. You do not deserve to be clothed with these clothes that are speaking of righteousness and purity and holiness. You're being clothed right now by nothing but sheer unmerited grace. That is why you have these clothes on. So what were they? They were washed. Then we see they were clothed. Then next, they were anointed. They were anointed. That's what you see in verses 10, 11, and 12. Moses took the anointing oil, anointed the tabernacle, the altar, its utensils, the basin, its stand, ultimately anointing Aaron's head. Notice it keeps saying to consecrate them, to consecrate them, to consecrate them. That is to set it apart for holy use. Everything must be consecrated, set apart for holy use. Thus they were anointed. Then notice in the biggest chunk of Leviticus 8, then animals were sacrificed. There were things sacrificed, verses 14 through 29. Moses, what did he do? He brought a bull for the sin offering. There's three animals, bull for the sin offering. Then there were two rams. The first ram was for a burnt offering. That's what we saw last week. And then there was a second ram offered up for the ordination offering. And with each offering, all you have to do is think about everything we said last week in Leviticus 1 and just pick it up and lay it on top of these verses right here now in Leviticus 8. Each time Aaron and his sons pressed their hands on the head of the sacrifice, what were they doing? They were owning their sin. They were saying, I'm a sinner. I need a sacrifice. I need this substitute to die in my place so that something dies. Remember what we said? The universal truth is the soul that sins that dies. Sin must result in death. 
And what Aaron and his sons were doing were owning this sin and recognizing, I need a substitute. So in the death of each animal, they'd understand there's a costliness to sin. And with the death of each animal, what they could also say is, I understand this, God has provided a way for sinful me to have atonement, to have atonement made for me. But then also in those verses there, if you look down into verses 23, 24, and following, where you see Moses come and he takes some of that blood, he throws it against the altar to purify the altar, but then he took some of that blood, and what did he do? He came and he rubbed some of it on the right ear, and then the right thumb, and then the right big toe. And you look at that, you're like, okay, you know. I guess, you know, we have got to, got to do something here. But what's, what's going on there? This act was a signification. It was signifying that Aaron and his sons again needed to be purified, but it wasn't just a little purification. It was top-to-bottom purification. Ear, hand, foot, like the whole, the whole enchilada. It's not like there's just a little microscopic corner of my life that needs to be purified. It's like, no, everything. Needs to be purified. Sin is invasive. It's like leaven. It just gets into the whole thing. And what I need is whole cleansing, total purification, top to bottom, entire cleansing. But then notice after animals were sacrificed, then they were sprinkled. That's verse 30. They were sprinkled. Moses took some of the anointing oil, took some of the blood that was on the altar, and sprinkled it on Aaron sprinkled it on his garments, and then did the exact same thing to Aaron's sons. Remember, he was not doing this. Moses was not doing this. He wasn't flicking this oil and blood onto these white linen garments just to stain them and make them dirty, but to cleanse them. Remember what blood represents in the Scriptures. These flicking of oil and especially blood upon them was to cleanse them because by the blood, that's how cleansing comes. According to God, blood is the deepest cleansing agent there is. That's why we sing songs by like washed by the blood of the lamb. How can bright red crimson blood wash me? You think it would stain me? Well, that's earthly thinking. Natural thinking, supernatural reality is it's actually by the bright red blood of the Lamb that is how we're washed clean and made pure and as white as snow. And so in the sprinkling, these realities would have came home to roost for Aaron and his sons. And then there was two more rites. Remember, this is like the giving of the rings. This is like the saying of the vows of a wedding ceremony. All of these rites, the washing the clothing, the anointing, the sacrificing, the sprinkling, what we're about to see now, the eating, all of these things were being marked out in the life of Aaron and his sons so that they might see, I am having a status change right now. So in verses 31 and 32, they were called to eat the flesh of these sacrifices at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They were to eat the bread 
This eating of the sacrifice would signify that they not only accepted the atonement made for them, but they feasted upon it. This is how they live. Think about it. We eat food in order to live. And feasting upon this kind of sacrifice, it was a very, basically a spiritual way of them saying, listen, I am able to live before a holy God because of God's provision of this substitute sacrifice. I'm eating it to show my life, not physically, but my life spiritually is found in the hope of this sacrifice making atonement for me. And then notice when you get down to verses 33 through 36, they, they had to wait. They waited seven days. As the Lord commanded to make atonement for you, says Moses, you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days so that you do not die. You need to wait for seven days. And Exodus 29 actually tells us they did this, what we just read, on each of those seven days. Day one, they did a Leviticus 8. Day two, they did a Leviticus 8. Three, four, five, six, seven. By the time you got to the end of day seven, my hunch is Aaron and the sons are like, we get it. We are not here by right. We are not declared holy and clean and pure before this holy God because of us, but because of Grace And so what does 36 say? Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded Moses. The washing, the clothing, the anointing, the sacrificing, the sprinkling, the eating, and the waiting. They did it in obedience to Yahweh. And after seven days, when these seven things were completed, guess what? They were consecrated, made holy, set apart as priests. This is them walking out the back end of the wedding ceremony. People would step back and go, they, in the eyes of the Lord, are not who they were when they came in on the front end of the ceremony seven days ago. Their status was truly changed before the Lord. And in this way, God made gracious provision for Aaron and his sons to be set apart as priests. And in this, folks, friends, in this, we see a shadow. When you look into Leviticus 8, you're meant to see a shadow which points forward to how not just Aaron and his sons were set apart as priests, but we're meant to see a shadow about how you and I are made priests before the exact same holy God. We are made holy by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, period, full stop. To come to Christ as Lord and Savior and to trust in Him, that is how any sinner is declared holy before a living God. We are made holy by believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And then the scriptures say all who are trusting in Christ, looking to Christ, are then made priests. We are set apart for service to our holy God by washing. We too have been washed. For we were, 1 Corinthians 6, washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We too have been dressed. 
For with our righteous acts as filthy rags, says the prophet Isaiah, we needed a new set of spiritual clothes, so to speak. We need to be clothed not with an inherent righteousness, but with an alien righteousness. A righteousness from outside of us needs to be put on us. And what we read in the prophet is that since we have been saved by our Savior, we can now say, He, God, has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah chapter 61. We too have been anointed when God anointed us and set His seal on us, putting His Spirit in our hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We too are trusting in a substitute sacrifice, for Christ is our sacrifice. And for all who have received Christ as their Savior, they have had their sins forgiven by His blood. We too have been sprinkled, having been sprinkled by His blood, says the Apostle Peter. We too eat when we take the words of Jesus and recognize that as eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking His blood, we are trusting in His death for our sins by the shedding of His blood. Blood, and ultimately, we, too, you and me, are a people who wait. We, too, wait. Anyone find themselves waiting before the Lord on this Sunday morning in May, May 1st? Yeah. Psalm 130, wait for the Lord. Put your hope and trust in Him. Friends, truly we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And listen to how Peter speaks after this. This is what came to light for me. I love this back verse, but I've never stitched it to something like Leviticus 8. Listen to the status change language Peter uses to describe those he just called chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. He says, listen, once you were not a people... But now you are a people. What is that? A change in status. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now since you've been washed, clothed, anointed, you're trusting in a sacrifice, sprinkled, eat, wait, guess what? You are now a people who have received mercy. You have had a status change as well. Truly, our status before the holy God has been changed into one of royal priests. And not just priests for priests' sake, but priests who've been made priests. What does Peter say in those exact same verses? That we may proclaim then the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what leads us into our second point. Not only were Old Testament priests set apart, but Old Testament priests were mediators mediators, and ultimately they point to the mediator, Jesus Christ. Listen, under the old sacrificial system, Aaron and his sons were a type of mediator. They were mediators between God and man, between God and Israel. Israel could not enter into Yahweh's holy presence unmediated. If you were an Israelite in this time, let's say, and you just sort of got a hankering, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bust past the front gate of the the tabernacle. I'm going to blow it open and I'm going to go run and diving right into the presence of the holy God and the holy of holies where he dwells. What you're going to happen, what's going to happen to you is you're going to be incinerated. How do I know this? Wait two, wait two weeks until Pastor John Kleinschmidt preaches to you Leviticus 10 and see what happens to Nadab and Abihu. 
when they don't take this stuff seriously. Israel could not enter into Yahweh's holy presence unmediated. To do so would bring death because the Lord's holiness destroys impurity. It destroys sinfulness in the same way that light destroys darkness. When you're in darkness and you turn on the light, darkness is destroyed. And that's what would happen if sinful man tried to approach a holy God unmediated. Thus, the only way for unholy, sinful people to come safely before a holy God was through the work of priestly mediators. But, as you know, Aaron and his sons were not meant to be priestly mediators forever. They were only shadows. They were fleeting and flickering shadows meant to be replaced in the fullness of time by the reality of Jesus Christ who was appointed by the Father to be our forever priestly mediator. This reality was put on display during that first Good Friday when Jesus gave a loud cry, breathed out his last breath, and then what do the gospel writers record for us? The curtain temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And in that moment, the torn curtain was God's bullhorn declaration that there is now one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You don't need a priest. You need Christ. No sinner needs any priest save one. The great high priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous. By his work on the cross and resurrection from the dead, Jesus proved once for all that he is the sole and final mediator we need. And in the words of Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, in light of this truth that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, what does this mean for me and what does this mean for you? Therefore, brothers, since, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that's Leviticus language. Only one person can go into the holy of holies back here. But now you, sir, you, madam, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Curtain torn in two. You now have direct access to this holy living God because you're a phenomenal human being. You're a philanthropic stud. You just do a lot of really good stuff, and man, by golly, that's earned your right before a living God. No. Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great high priest, continues the author, over the house of God, so there's the priest's language, here's what you need to do. Let us draw near with a true heart, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Why can we draw near to the living holy God in full assurance of faith that we will not be incinerated because our hearts have been sprinkled clean, very Leviticus language, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, very Leviticus language. So do you see why we went to Hebrews first and now we're jumping back into Leviticus? Let's try to stitch together for you all the stuff that's so hard in Hebrews. It's actually born out of something. 
And then, drawing near with this kind of confidence, let us live out our royal priesthood by proclaiming the excellencies of our forever priestly mediator so that those around us might also be saved through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's Titus chapter 3. If you have eyes to see, this washing language is everywhere in the Bible. Your neighbors, as we prayed earlier, who are beginning to come out of their homes just like you because it is springtime, what do they need? Do they need the mediating work of the great high priest? Yes, they do. The only hope your neighbor has is standing before a holy God on that final day of judgment is to be able to say, not me, but my priest. I'm not clean, but he's washed me. I'm not pure, but he's made me pure. I was unholy, but he sprinkled me, cleansed me, and made me holy before a holy God. Our aim as royal priests is not to be the mediator, but to point to the mediator. And then our mediating work simply looks like this. Neighbor, can I show you Jesus? Neighbor, can I pray for you? Neighbor, can I? Neighbor, how can I serve? Neighbor, how can I love? Neighbor, would you come into my home? Neighbor, can we share a meal? Neighbor, that's the mediating work. In a sense, you are mediating. You're standing between man. You're standing between the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you're not doing that because there's any hope of you saving them. You're doing that so that you can bring them and show them the mediator that can save them. And that is the beauty of being a royal priesthood, a holy nation, treasured possession of our living God. I hear this, and it makes my heart sing. Now may all glory and power be to Jesus Christ, listen to what the Apostle John says, who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. My hope is that we would rejoice in that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you recognizing our need for you. Lord, would you take the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and lead your people to rejoice in these things. We are desperately in need of the mediator, our great high priest. Lord, would you stir us to see that now, if we are in Christ, we are truly a royal priesthood. This is who we are. We don't have to carry guilt. We don't have to carry shame. We've truly been cleansed, sprinkled, made pure by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, help us to walk in light of this identity and then point others to the mediating priest, Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen.